Father, we pray that what we have just sung would be true of us, that we would not judge you by feeble, limited sense. Our senses, fallen, feeble, frail, finite as we are human creatures, but creatures. And we pray that we would trust you for your grace, for behind a frowning providence, you hide a smiling face. Father, as we turn to the book of Job in these next several weeks, we pray that these words would become more and more true in our hearts, that we would understand you and your ways, though mysterious, that we would understand what you have told us in Scripture and that we would trust you where we don't understand. We thank you and praise you for your word and for bringing us here around it this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. The book of Job. Job is just before the book of Psalms. The Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. Biggest book of the Bible. Job is right to the left. Should be easy to find. We begin this week a short five-week series through the book of Job titled Out of the Whirlwind. A title that should take on meaning later in our series. Our text this morning is Job chapters one through two, but I'm going to read selections across those two chapters to begin this morning's sermon, and I'll tell you where I'm going as we go. First, Job one, one through five. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to their number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now verses 13 through 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took uh, took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came yet another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now verses 7 through 8 of chapter 2. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Well, who is in charge of this world? Who is in charge of this world? Anyone who says we don't have a problem here has a problem. This is world is a crazy place and we should want to know who is in charge. If we had a job where people were fired, hired, promoted, and demoted with seemingly no rhyme or reason, we would wonder about the competency of the boss. Doesn't seem to be in control of things. Doesn't seem to have good intentions. Doesn't seem to have the wisdom or the insight to know how to motivate and lead his people. We should assume that anyone with any other options would serve at almost any other place of employment under almost any other leader. Suffering, and especially irrational suffering, raises questions about God's nature, his control, his intentions, and his wisdom. And when it comes to suffering, the Bible is a talkative book. There's suffering that follows as a natural consequence of our own sin. There is suffering that follows as a specific judgment or discipline for specific sin. There is suffering that is a function of a fallen world that we live in, and there's suffering that comes as a result of foolishness. But then there's a kind of suffering that just doesn't make any sense at all, and there's a tremendous amount of this kind of suffering in the world. It's just over the top, the kind of suffering that makes you say, really? Really? Your beautiful, perfect child, dead. A tornado flattens a school and tears children from the hands of its teachers. The economy dies and you lose your savings and the business you've spent your life building. Your spouse changes and now they're gone. The book of Job is part of a collection of books that belong to a genre of literature called wisdom literature. It was common in the ancient world. It was a a common genre that they would have understood and God is inspiring a book of the Bible using the rules of this genre and the expectations of this genre to teach us some things. The kind of writing, wisdom that is, isn't primarily about giving insight into deep questions as we might think when we hear the word wisdom. It includes that. Rather, wisdom literature aims to help its readers live wisely in the world by helping them understand the nature of the world that we're in. If you try to fly a plane like a car, like you drive a car, you're not going to get anywhere. You'll crash the thing. It matters the kind of vehicle you're flying or you're, you're navigating. And so it's true in life. We must understand the kind of world that we're in if we're going to live in it wisely or live in it, we should say, skillfully. That's the gist of wisdom literature. The book of Psalms gives us a certain kind of wisdom. The book of Proverbs gives us a certain kind of wisdom. And the book called Song of Solomon gives us a certain kind of wisdom. The incongruence between who we are and what happens to us is the struggle this book of Job is written to address. Here's how D.A. Carson begins his essay on the book of Job. Struggle as we may with various facets of the problem of evil and suffering. There are times when particularly virulent, uh, evil, or horrible, inequitable suffering strikes us as staggeringly irrational and unfair. Quite frequently, this impression is driven home when we cannot see how to escape the lack of proportion between the massive suffering and the relative inoffensiveness of the afflicted party. So the book of Job is written to present us with wisdom for suffering wisely in this world as those who know God and understand the nature of the world that he made and governs. 
So who is Job and what happened to him? Who is Job and what happened to him? That's what we learn in the first two chapters of this book. We meet this man and we get his story. So point number one, Job, blameless and blessed. Job, blameless and blessed. Verses one through five. In one sense, Job is a normal guy and we're supposed to see that. Verse one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Where is the land of Uz? We have no idea where the land of Uz was or is, and that's kind of the point. He has no genealogy. He has no special relationship to God in terms of redemptive history like Abraham or Moses or David. There's no time frame given for his life situating him in Israel's history. He's just a guy and not even necessarily a Hebrew. But in two clear ways, Job was someone special. First, he was blameless. He was blameless. Verse 1, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, that's a pretty good bio for one sentence. Say four things about him. Blameless, upright, he feared God and turned away from evil. Learn four things. He's blameless. Now, in the title for this point, I'm using it in kind of a general sense to communicate his uh, godliness and his character. But in context, this refers to his personal integrity. He was not a perfect man, but if you tried to find out a secret about him, you wouldn't find it. He was outwardly what he was inwardly. He had integrity in his person. He was upright, which refers generally to his dealings with others. He was an honest man and could be trusted. He feared God, which refers to his relationship to God. He had very little to go on, actually. He's before Moses and had nothing of the scriptures, would not have known the story of the Exodus, but he had enough knowledge of God to know that he's there, he's powerful, he rules the world, and he's accountable to him, and that he can trust him. He feared God. And he turned away from evil. This indicates his relationship to sin. He was a man tempted as men are, but he turned from sin. Job was blameless. Job was also blessed. Job is blessed with many children. Verse 2, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. That's seven boys and three girls for a total of ten, and seven sons is a good number for a farmer. Plenty of people have kids and don't feel blessed, of course. Things don't always go well. But these are healthy and happy children. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Kids are sort of all grown up, maybe a few at home. The sisters aren't married, it doesn't sound like. They may be under his care still. The children are called young, uh, young people later on in the book. Job's in the prime of his life. Some kids at home, some kids off to college or married and with their own homes. Job is blessed with children. Job is blessed with wealth. Verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. It actually took me until Saturday afternoon to stare at those numbers and realize just how huge they are. And, And just think in my imagination about how many animals that is. Wealth is measured in assets like this, and so Job is a wealthy man. And these specific animals tell us what he was up to. 3,000 camels were for traveling and taking things through the desert. 3,000 camels. 500 pair of oxen were for plowing land. It's a lot of land. 500 female donkeys carried produce and produced milk. This was some 
This was some arsenal of pre-industrial age farm equipment. Serious farming dude. Add to this a huge staff. He had many servants. The book of Job isn't given to understatement, but this sure sounds like one. This is a tremendous operation. Very many, many, many servants. He's a good leader of people and a manager of his business. We can assume rightly that Job's blamelessness and his his blessing uh, that has come to his life aren't just a coincidence. God has made the world in such a way that godliness and hard work actually work. His wealth didn't just drop out of the sky. It represents Job's life and probably a heritage of hard work. Smart decisions about life, money, time, assets, and so forth. His kids are getting along because he's a good dad. Notice that each son has his own home. That would have been rare in that day. All over the place, Job is reaping the fruit of what he has sown. And for all, this, for all these reasons, Job is blessed with reputation. We're told in verse 3, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His reputation and his name was famous throughout the land. Like the name Steve Jobs or Bill Gates would be famous throughout our land, accomplished, successful men. Job is truly an all-around great guy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, we might say. But ultimately, Job knew where blessedness comes from. It comes from God. And he knew what blessedness ultimately was, knowing God. For it is God who gives him breath and every good thing, however, it comes to him. So a bit later in the chapter, we'll learn that God, verse 10, put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. God blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land for that reason. Job knew this. He was a great man, though not a perfect man. He was, even in all his wealth, but a man. He knew God, and Job wasn't fooled by his wealth into thinking that he or his family was free from sin or beyond their need for God at every moment. And so we read in verse 5, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. There may be some anxiety here on his part. You You don't wonder if your kids are cursing God in their hearts if they're devoted to the Lord. It's uncertain. Maybe he's just being especially careful. Some commentators and books have made a lot of this, pages on this, Worry of uh, Job's. I don't think we're given a lot to go on here. But at the very least, we can see that Job is not a man who is technically or just outwardly godly. If he cares about the goings-on in the hearts of his kids, he knows what truly matters to God. I can remember when Christy and I watched a show that should move you. And at the end of it, you're wondering if your spouse was crying. So I said, "Uh, did you cry? She said, no. Quietly. There were tears in my eyes. What do you mean there were tears in your eyes? I don't consider it crying unless they're coming down my cheeks. See, my wife was uh, getting off on a technicality. Well, Job in his walk with God knows no such getting off on technicalities. Job is offering sacrifices to God just in case any one of his family sins. Verse 5, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And he didn't just do this every now and then. The text continues, thus Job did continually. You see, this whole package of five verses is meant to show us that Job was an upright, blameless man, and he was blessed. The whole section is bookmarked with his relationship with God 
I think, to prioritize that aspect of his life, which is the most important thing about him. So what went wrong? Everything was going just fine, and then his world was turned upside down, and then shaken, and then invaded by armies, and then flattened by winds, and then infected with sores all over. And it's this craziness that this book is meant to answer. The author of this book takes us into God's throne room now for an explanation. So we've got an introduction to Job in the first five verses. And now in verse six to the end of the chapter, we witness the testing of Job for a purpose unknown to Job. So point two, Job tested. Job tested. We'll read verses six through 11. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, will Job believe God when his fridge is empty, when his business is destroyed, his house foreclosed and his children laid dead? Satan is saying that Job is righteous because he is blessed by God. God is saying Job is blessed by God because he is righteous. Satan is saying God is not really worth serving and God is saying he is worth serving and Job is his proof. The question about Job's allegiance is a good question for all of us. As Job likely predates Moses, this may be the Bible's oldest literary work one of its oldest stories. But pain is pain at the beginning of the world and now. What will Job do? Is this really the setup for what happens to Job? Because we know what happens to Job. Well, first, let's establish some true things about the universe that we've learned from these verses. Some true things about the universe that we have learned from these verses. First, the universe is more than meets the eye. There's a seen and an unseen realm. There's an immaterial reality that we don't see. Materialism, the idea that the material world is all that there is, atoms in motion, is not compatible with Christianity. And if anyone is honest, their own experience of the world. So my friends, in your suffering, know that it's not just a matter of biological, physiological, and neurological reactions to stimuli that is making you sad and cry and cause feelings of grief. And the things that happen in your life are not merely a matter of mechanical cause and effect in a universe with no meaning. There is more to the universe than meets the eye. And second, there is more than just an unseen realm. There are unseen characters and actors, the Lord and Satan and the sons of God who are the angelic beings around God's throne. This rules out any kind of deism where the world runs like a watch, God set it up and built it and it just ticks along. There are characters involved here. And so when you're suffering, there are unseen personalities with a stake in what's going on. There are various forms 
of supernatural engagement with the world and with our lives. Third, the unseen characters aren't all on the same page. Satan is saying to God, in effect, you're a nobody and the only reason people like you is because of the stuff you give them. Take those things away and they'll curse you. You're worth nothing. He's saying something about Job, but he's saying really something about God. And the book, he's not even really called Satan. He's called The Satan. The Satan. The Satan said this. The Satan went here. The Satan did this. It means enemy, opponent, adversary. He's an accuser, accusing God. That's why Paul speaks in the New Testament about schemes of the devil. He says in Ephesians 6, 12, do we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's true. That's what we wrestle against. So monism, a kind of worldview or religion says that everything is one, everything is one and thus pain is an illusion, it's not compatible with scripture or your experience or any kind of monism that sees the supernatural influence over the universe as simple as one personality affecting the universe. Islam would fall into this category. My friends, your suffering is one part of a cosmic battle for glory. A cosmic battle for glory. God and Satan. But fourth, we must say this universe is nonetheless the Lord's universe, which includes Satan. Which is why Martin Luther would say that Satan is God's Satan. He is God's Satan. He presents himself before the Lord. He has to ask and be given permission to do whatever he wants. He cannot just do whatever he wants. And this means any form of what's called dualism is incompatible with Christianity. The idea that there are two competing forces wrestling behind the scenes with equal power or, sim- or, compat- or a comparable power, duking it out so that there is no meaning to history and no design to history or sure direction to history. Yes, there is good versus evil, but evil is no match. Forms of pantheism, which attribute many things that happened out here to the activity of many different gods is incompatible with Christianity. There's the God and there's the world he made, seen and unseen and everything and everyone in it. And all of this is true. Back to the throne room scene. How will God answer Satan's charge and demand? He's charged God with being worthless and he's demanded that God give him permission He's demanded that God take things away from Job in order that Satan may prove his point. One strategy for dealing with people with especially bad arguments is to ignore them. But that can also be a sign that you're not willing to deal with the arguments and perhaps there's a better way for God to show off his worth. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, what will the Lord say to Satan? Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And this response should shock us. If we're familiar with the book of Job, we may have known it was coming, but it should not have been the first thing that we thought that God would do to release Satan on his choice servant. Doesn't sound like a good boss of the universe, but it is according to God's wisdom and for his glory. That's the context for Job's test. 
Now comes the test. So scene change. We've been in heaven, around God's throne room, getting some behind-the-scenes action, and now we're on the ground of the earth. We'll watch the test play out. Satan insists that Job only loves God for what God does for him. God insists that Job loves God for God and who is right. And what follows is Satan taking that permission to the hilt and going with it as far as it will let him go. And so it was a perfect day on planet Earth. Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And then it hits. Boom, 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 boom. Like a drum cadence of calamity, four crashes, one right after another in perfect sync, as though it was calculated just this way by someone with the intent to destroy Job. Verse 14, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell and took them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all the sheep and the servants and, confu- and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on all on the camels and took them all and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, and with his wealth destroyed and his business destroyed and the servants he led dead by a sword, like a storm that's been rolling in, the thunder of this cadence gets louder and louder until he hears this, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, A great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. The only reason anyone was allowed to escape any of these calamities was so that they could deliver the news to Job and to deliver the news to Job in exactly this way. So ends what was quite literally a day of hell a day from hell for Job. So how did Job respond? The heavenly court in heaven watching this? Job's put to the test. Verse 20, what does a man say? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Worshiped. He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are no trite words. Let's stare at a moment for this man, as hard as it may be. First, he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. No one in this room would do that, but that's okay. You would do something else. It's an expression of great grief in context. Job is profoundly upset. His response is understandable and appropriate given the loss. He is undone. Second, he fell to the ground and worshipped God. It's grief-stricken worship. It's grief-stimulated worship. And don't miss this. Grief and worship are not incompatible. Crying and trusting God are not incompatible. I hope you have a category for this. You may have felt before that your sadness must be a sign that you don't love or trust God. 
And perhaps you have been told as much, and perhaps it is true. Often it is not true. Kids, you may know, have different kinds of cries. There's a selfish cry, a cry when they're jealous or angry. There's a cry of deep disappointment when something that they've made or created is destroyed. That happened once this last week in our home. Kids cry at the loss of people all the time. They cry when we pull away from grandma and grandpa's house. They're sad, they're heartbroken. And they cry when something sad happens to someone in their life. The first kind of crying which is selfish is unacceptable. The second is reasonable and perfectly understandable. And if human beings were made to feel sadness at all, then the last kind of crying is right and it's good. Job tore his robe, he fell to the ground and worshiped through tears. Third, he confessed his creaturely position. There are more than one or two emotions to feel in worship, joy and gladness. Another is grief and another is humility, a feeling of smallness. And one way to know that you are not God, one way to know that you know God is that you don't feel like you're God. You know your place. Naked we came, naked we go. Fourth, he acknowledged the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty that is both generous, which gives, and grievous at times as it takes away. And fifthly, bless the Lord's name. And there's our answer to how Job responded. He did not curse God as Satan insisted and expected. Job praised God with his lips. And so God's name is vindicated. Job doesn't fear God for what God can give, but for God's sake he fears him. And so Satan is wrong and God is right. Job has passed the test and God's name is intact. Job is right not to curse God. But is Job right to give God credit for his hardship? Is Job right to give God credit for his hardship? That seems like an important question for us to settle. And it is an important question for you to settle. God has given, has God taken away? Has God taken away? Satan has said, stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he'll curse you to your face. And God said to Satan, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. Whose hand is doing the taking from Job? Satan's hand stirred the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to attack. And Satan's hand stirred the air to flatten the house where the children were feasting. And didn't the attackers themselves have their own evil purposes? They weren't robots. They were thieves and murderers, stealing and killing by swords they brought to Job's property. Exactly who has taken these things from Job? This is a philosophical question. It involves ultimate ideas. But it's not a philosophical question only. It's a deeply personal question. It involves ultimate ideas and it involves faces. And to answer the philosophical question for us adequately, God has given us not a two-page explanation of how this works. He's given us a 42-chapter book about a man named Job from Uz. You've been there. A sadness comes to your life that makes no sense at all. 
In your own way, you have torn your robe and shaved your head, and you wonder if God is in charge of everything. Why this? Why now? Why at this time? Why in this way? And why me? Or why them? When we're asking these questions, it matters deeply whether or not God is in charge of the universe, and we feel the weight of that question. Is Job right? Scripture records all kinds of untrue statements from the lips of people who get God wrong, even good people. Is this one of those occasions? Job says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22 is our answer. What is God's interpretation of Job's interpretation of his suffering? In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And we should be blown away by God's response to Satan and by Job's response to God and now by God's response to Job. There is a God at the top of the organizational flowchart of the universe. So Job has been tested and proved God right and Satan wrong. But will that satisfy Satan? Will that satisfy Satan? Well, is Satan ever satisfied? Surely not. There is more to Job than Satan has been allowed so far to take, and he wants it all. You see, Job's children are dead and his assets gone, and this may sound insensitive, but Job can still enjoy the sun, taste food, and he can have more children. He can rebuild his business. He can, as it were, start all over. He has his health. But not for long, for there is another round of even more invasive testing. So point three, Job tested again. Job tested again. Three, Job 2, verses 1 through 8. We're back in the throne room of God again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears and turns away from evil, fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from, the foot, uh, from his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes." A disgusting scene to see a man destroyed like this in ashes, scraping himself with pottery. And so Satan has taken Job to the edge. He's a cruel enemy. Sin may taste good. Abandoning God may seem appropriate, advantageous at some point to you in your life. But it is the bait of the enemy of God and one who hates you and would kill you if God would let him. This second test is not the same as the first and in a number of ways, it's personal for Job. This is his body. These are his nerve endings, skin for skin. Satan says it's personal for Satan. Satan didn't mediate this with windstorms or armies. He goes to Job personally and strikes him. He left the presence of God and struck Job. 
And it's immediate. It doesn't happen on another day as it appears to happen in the case of the first test. Satan leaves the presence of God and gets it done. Eager for Job to denounce God. It is Satan's food. But Job still has his wife. We haven't heard anything about her death. We know that she must be suffering with Job in many ways, having lost the wealth that Job has lost and the children that Job has lost with him. And Job wouldn't have a loser wife, we wouldn't assume. She attracted a man like Job and she was attracted to a man like Job and her life was nurtured under his loving care. She gave birth to and raised 10 children, including seven boys, perhaps a perfectly terrible number of boys. And they all get along great and invite their sisters over for birthday parties, it sounds like. They're healthy and happy. The text doesn't specifically give us a character profile for the wife, but we might assume as much. And she's a good woman. Maybe she would comfort him with a word of confidence in his character. You're strong, honey. You can do this. Maybe she would comfort him with the certainty of her own love. I am with you through this and I'm going nowhere. Maybe she would just comfort Job with the certainty of her presence and be with him and not speak as is often appropriate when someone is suffering. What will Job's wife say? What will she do? Well, none of that. Remember how Satan insisted to God that Job would curse you to your face, to quote him? Job's wife issues the order, verse nine. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Satan spared the life of Job's wife precisely because it is more spiritually deadly to hear these kinds of words out of the mouth of your spouse than it would be for your spouse to die. So spouses hear this. Your words are powerful. Powerful. They can kill. Satan strategically placed the words of Job's wife at the end of this test intended by Satan to be a last straw for Job's life out of the mouth of his companion in life. It speaks to the importance of marriage. These words mark the climax of Job's second test. Or were God's word concerning Job hold up? Is God right about Job? Is God guessing? Job doesn't know that he has this kind of integrity when he goes into this test. God, we might assume, does. Verse 3, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. How does Job respond to these climactic words from the lips of his wife? And this is an eager moment in the book, by the way. Will Job hold fast? If we know where it's going, we might not feel like we're on the edge of our seat. The World Cup is going on and many of you are on the edge of your seats. Our graphics designer has been wearing jerseys all week. He said it's been a stressful week and an exciting week. We know what it is to be on the edge of our seat. We know what it is to be to feel like we have a lot at stake in something that's happening on a screen. Just imagine the heavenly court around God's throne watching this play out. It was there when Satan accused God of being worthless. 
instead of God's choice servant that he's just in it for the stuff. And God says, take everything away. Just don't take his life. How's this gonna go? Job's sitting in ashes. He's found a piece of pottery so he can scrape the sores off his arm and his body. And his wife is telling him to give curse God and die. What will Job say? Point four, Job, blameless and barely alive. Blameless and barely alive. After hearing the lips, the words of the serpent on the lips of his wife, Job speaks in verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? This is about as close to calling your wife a fool as you can get. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. It's like saying, what got into you? You know better than this. He has rebuked his wife and rightly so when she tells him to curse God and to give up. And in the clarity of this moment, the only thing crazier to Job than his circumstances is the suggestion that he should curse God and die. Foolishness says, God is worth blessing when God blesses and life is worth living when life is good. Wisdom said, says, God is worth blessing as long as he is God and life is worth living as long as God is giving life. Everything good in Job's life was ultimately from God and he knows it, even if these, those things came by ordinary means. And this is precisely why Job can say, shall we not receive evil from God? Wicked things come into our life by ordinary means, the sword of neighboring enemies taking his servants and taking his animals. Winds even. And yet he says he received evil from God. God does not think up evil schemes. This book should teach us that. The context is clear. Satan had his motive and purpose, and God has his motive and purpose. But what came to Job was indeed an evil. And God is the last authority in the universe. He can veto anything, and by not vetoing a tragedy, he effectively signs it into reality, albeit for his own reasons, which are undisclosed to Job. We should have a hint now that suffering and evil and sovereignty are not simplistically understood or explained things. If you've always said, I can't believe God is sovereign because suffering happens and he can't be responsible for it, then this series through Job is going to rock you at a deep level. And rocking you at a deep level, it will rock you at a personal level. And not in such a way as to make suffering more difficult, but to make suffering more understandable, bearable, and productive for you, even more comforting. And to make you more wise. If God isn't at the top of the org chart, he is not God. If someone else is in control, if someone else has the upper hand, at any second, at any space or moment or spot on this earth, God is not God. But if you have said God is in charge, it's as simple as that, then maybe your vision of God needs a corrective as well, more nuanced to recognize that while evil happens within God's plan, he is not evil and does not contrive evil schemes for evil purposes. And maybe you would say as much, but need to be more careful in the way that you speak about the sovereignty of God. And so God says, interpreting Job's words here, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. All this happened to Job and no sinful word came out of his mouth. So as one commentator put it so well, the worship of an ordinary man in the middle of his suffering vindicates the name of God. This room is full of ordinary people who have suffered in many ways. 
in your worship of God in the midst of great suffering vindicates the name of Almighty God. And cheers and thrills the angels around his throne and confounds Satan. Test two is over. Job has suffered greatly, but he has kept his integrity. He remained blameless. Job did not sin, and God's name is vindicated. And all of this can't help but remind us of another face-off, a face-off between God's beloved son, an ordinary man from Nazareth, and yet no ordinary man, and Satan many years later. After being baptized, the Spirit of God took Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil, Scripture says, to take easy routes. Job's wife says to him, curse God and die. And Satan says to Jesus after 40 days with no food in Luke 4, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. To which Jesus replied, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan took him to a high mountain and showed him all the world's kingdoms in a single moment. All of the kingdoms of the world in a single moment shows it to Jesus. It says to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. To which Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. There were other temptations. Jesus would pass them all. He would prove God right, and Jesus would die on a cross where he, more upright than Job, suffering more than Job, held fast his integrity and worshiped God with arms stretched out. So that whenever, when we, whenever we encounter unjust suffering in this life, we can think of Jesus Christ who knew much unjust suffering. And we can remember that the God who is in control of all of the evil that comes into our life was in control of the evil that nailed Jesus to the cross for our sake. He gave Satan that leash, which also snapped Satan's neck, which also purchased our salvation, brought about our salvation. And we need a God to be this in control of evil because we need a God to put an end to evil. When we've read the first two chapters of Job together, just imagine that there are 40 left. Because there are 40 left. There are 40 left. These two chapters are the setting for a long book ahead. We might have thought this would be enough, right? There's a man named Job. He's an excellent man. He suffers greatly, but he worships God. Lesson learned. Oh, there is much to learn yet. For Job and for us, God is not done with either. And so the end of chapter two will actually tee up nicely next week's sermon. Chapter two, verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nemethite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled, sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And so Job, the greatest man in the east, suffers very great suffering. His friends can tell that he's barely at this point alive 
And that's why they respond as they do. These three friends will be sitting here with Job in silence until we meet this week next time. Seven days and seven nights. They have come to his comfort, and next week we're going to see how that goes. Uh, Next week's sermon will be over something like 28 chapters. It'll take us through 31. Not going to read it all. Uh, I'd encourage you to read it, though. Maybe you would read the book of Job once a week over the next five weeks. promise you you'll get more out of it. If you show up wrestling with what this means and what this book is trying to get across, sit under a sermon each week, it'll triple. It'll triple the, the work of the Spirit in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful to you for the book of Job. We're grateful that you haven't given us a brief explanation of how suffering works, a quick answer. You've given us a longer answer than we may have thought we needed. You've given us a long book in the book of Job, and we're grateful for every word. Make us grateful for every word deep down. By your spirit, help us to understand what you are saying here. Encourage us, confront us, correct us, shock us, and enlighten us with a vision of yourself. Do this for us over these next week, weeks through the book of Job. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.